Friends, what we just sang is true. We need the Lord all the time. We need him now as we look to his word. There's a lot going on in many lives this morning, and we got a lot of wind blowing. And so there's distractions aplenty that could take our attention away from what we're doing. And so let's ask the Lord now to come and overcome those things as he is faithful to do and ask him to help us as we look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you with a very simple prayer. We pray for you to show up and minister to us by your spirit as we look to your word. And we ask as your people have for a long time that as we look to your word and as you minister to us that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, that you would give us. And what we are not, that you would make us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, friends, we are jumping back into a sermon series through Proverbs 1 to 9 this morning. It's been about five months since we were last in Proverbs. And so I have aimed throughout these outdoor services to keep sermons a little bit shorter, uh, just for obvious reasons. I am going to do my best to do that again today. And at the same time, I want to make some comments by way of introduction so that we can reorient ourselves just a little bit back in Proverbs 1 to 9, given that it's been so much time. We'll be looking today at Proverbs 6. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open there uh, or turn to that in your Bible app so that you will be ready as we will look to that text in just a moment. It's worth saying again, as I've said in each of the sermons in Proverbs up to now, that Proverbs is a lot more than practical wisdom. That's how we often hear it talked about, that it is much more than that. It's important for us to remember that Proverbs was written during the era of what's known as the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. And in particular, that covenant matters because the law of Moses is still in effect, but the covenant God made with David helped God's people better understand how exactly they would be saved and who exactly would be their savior. The people of Israel were in anticipation of a son of David, the Christ, who would be the representative of God's people and would reign forever in righteousness over them. So as we come to any part of the Bible, we want to interpret it well in light of the whole. So that certainly means that we keep in mind the grand story of Scripture, the redemptive historical context that we talk about a lot. But in this case, as we come to Proverbs, it also means that we need to remember things like this. That Solomon, the man who wrote the vast majority of Proverbs, also wrote Ecclesiastes. So it's good for us to realize that Proverbs will do many things for us, but it will not do the following things. Proverbs will not deliver us from the fallenness of the world. It will not guarantee us good circumstances. It will not deliver us from all suffering. Proverbs will not keep us from the toil that characterizes life in this fallen world. It will not keep us from ever knowing heartbreak. Proverbs will not deliver us from sorrow and pain altogether. Proverbs will not keep us from groaning like the rest of creation as we await the consummation of our redemption, which is our bodily resurrection. We will groan until then. Proverbs will not deliver us from the struggle against sin. It will not deliver us from weakness. 
Proverbs will not guarantee us a clean, linear, continual, just nice, nice and tidy progress in life all the time. And Proverbs will not guarantee us that things will never fall apart in this life. But here are some things that Proverbs will do for us. Proverbs will teach us the difference between wisdom and folly. Proverbs will teach us the difference between righteousness and evil. It will teach us what pleases God. It will teach us what's good for us. Proverbs will teach us to be all kinds of good for our neighbor. We trust that the Proverbs will be used of God. This is important as a tool of his loving discipline in our lives, as he continues to work in us by his spirit to conform us into the image of his son. And ultimately, if we understand them rightly, Proverbs will show us Christ and will drive us to him in gratitude and faith. So I'm preaching a series through the first nine Proverbs, just a practical word there. Uh, They lend themselves best to these kind of expositional messages. And it's fine to do this in part two because the major themes of Proverbs are repeated over and over. And so we will be able to bring those major themes even into these messages that we have left in Proverbs 1 to 9. Just last comments by way of introduction, friends. Proverbs calls us to choose wisdom and not foolishness. It calls us to walk in paths of righteousness. And there is clear acknowledgement that there will be failing and falling. Hence the promise of Proverbs 16 and verse 6, that by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And words like this from Proverbs 24, that the righteous falls seven times and rises again. Some major themes that we've already seen in the first five chapters of Proverbs are the goodness and the value of wisdom. Wisdom is good, and wisdom is more precious than about anything. We have seen over and over again the destructiveness of sin and evil, sin of all kinds. We have seen that all wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, the reverence that we would have before God, who he is and what he requires, which we have considered leads us necessarily to Christ and what he's done for us. And by implication, we have considered that real wisdom begins with repentance. God's wisdom could be summarized with this. Trust Christ. Walk humbly before God. Pursue good. Flee from evil. And love each other. So now let's look to Proverbs 6. As you've already turned there, I will go ahead and read now God's word for us, and then we will consider the passage together. So this is the word of God beginning in Proverbs 6 and verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep 
a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven things that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Amen. We thank God for his word, and we trust that he will guide us even as we now look to it. Just a few brief words of overview on this text. When it comes to thinking about scripture, high level, large scale, we talk regularly about the distinction between law, things that we are told to do, and gospel, things that we are told have been done for us in Christ. It's good that we would understand that this text is basically all law. That is not a negative statement in any way. This text is full of statements, do this and you will live kind of things. Do this and things will go well for you. Don't do this because it will ruin you and destroy your life. That's what this text is comprised of. Our text today is full of wisdom and it is full of precepts for us to live by. And it contains warnings of what it will look like if we do not heed the wisdom and the precepts offered. So as we make our way through the passage today, consider these things. Consider how you have not lived wisely. Consider how you have not lived righteously and let that drive you over and over again in gratitude and faith to Jesus who has fulfilled all righteousness for you. Also, as we make our way through the text, consider how God's word for you in Christ is the perfect guide for your life and mine. God continues to use his word and ultimately the power of his spirit through his word to transform us, to teach us. So listen with that in mind. Solomon is writing as he has been as a proverbial father to a proverbial son. 
There are five clear sections in the text, and we're just going to take them one at a time. So let's begin with section one. In verses one to five, we are exhorted to seek reconciliation and forgiveness. In verses one to five, we are exhorted to seek reconciliation and forgiveness. We read the words of Solomon there that if we give our word or make a pledge to our neighbor and do not make good on that pledge, we should seek reconciliation and forgiveness at once. We could, and I think should understand this more broadly to apply to any time we wrong our neighbor. Solomon is saying this, if you've wronged your neighbor, you need to reconcile quickly. Now, certain situations are delicate. We understand that. Sometimes there's history between two parties that makes things difficult. That's fine. And yet God's word is clear that we are to seek reconciliation and unity. We are to ask for forgiveness when we sin against each other. Because of our pride and because of our insecurity and a whole host of other issues with us, we can struggle with this, with all of it. In every membership class that we teach, God willing, we'll be able to do another one inside sometime. Every membership class we teach here for CBC, we go through the church covenant, which is a document that outlines how we agree to live together. And in that church covenant are contained these words. We will be slow to take offense and always eager to seek the reconciliation Christ commands. We talk about the fact that if people join CBC, there are two things that are a certainty. One, that they will be offended and sinned against by a member of this church. And two, that they will also offend and sin against others. So the question is not, will sin happen? The question is not, will offenses be committed? The question is, what do we do when they occur? Because they will, and they do. We are to walk according to Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul exhorts us in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Solomon in our text today is exhorting us to seek reconciliation, to make things right with our neighbor when we wrong them. Just a brief comment of something that's related to this for the church. When reconciliation is sought, when forgiveness is asked for, we are to forgive each other. Jesus in Luke 17 says these words to his disciples. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now those words are pretty clear and they're not necessarily how we often think in the church, sadly. A lot of times we, we think in terms like this. Well, bro, if you've sinned against me seven times today, there's no way you're genuinely repentant. I'm going to wait until you've demonstrated adequate fruits of that repentance and then I'll forgive you. Not what we're exhorted to do in God's word. Reconciliation is to be sought quickly. When reconciliation and forgiveness are sought, we are to forgive each other. Obviously, we've got a lot of wind blowing, guys. We're going to keep pressing through. I'm going to keep going. If people need to come up here and fix things, grab things, that is totally fine. Let's keep tracking with God's word. Section 2. 
section 2. In verses 6 through 11, we are warned against laziness. We are warned against laziness. Solomon points the lazy person who is referred to in the text as the sluggard to consider the ant, this small insect and her diligence and resourcefulness. He then points to how lazy people think. He says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That's how it goes. Man, I need some sleep. I need some rest. I need a little folding of the hands so that I can do that. And Solomon says that for the lazy person, now there's a difference in laziness and legitimate rest and diversion from the task. For the lazy person, Solomon says that all that will result in is poverty and wanting. God's word, brothers and sisters, exhorts us to work. We were created to work and cultivate the world we live in. We are to be diligent and resourceful. God's word straight up chastises laziness. Consider these other verses from Proverbs. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 13.4 The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing, Proverbs 20 and verse 4. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor, Proverbs 21, 25. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets, Proverbs 22, 13. Like, hey, it's dangerous out there, man. If I leave this kind of restful space, if I leave my house, if I go to do anything, it's dangerous and I could be harmed. I'm just going to stay here and chill. Consider the words of Paul in 2 Thessalonians. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Praise God. Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. One of the coolest things about God's word, guys, is that it's just so simple and clear and good and straightforward. It's not complicated. And it's good for us. God tells us in his word, don't be lazy. It won't go well for you. Work honestly. Work an honest job for an honest wage. Earn a living. It's good for you. Not only will you be able to provide for yourself and your family, which is a good thing, you will also have things to give to others when they are in need, which is a good thing. Section 3, verses 12 to 15. In verses 12 to 15, we are warned against devising evil and sowing discord. We are warned against devising evil and sowing discord. Discord. Solomon in these verses describes what he refers to as a worthless man. So in other words, like you want to be worthless, do what he describes in these verses. This worthless man, this wicked person, goes around with crooked speech. He goes around working people, manipulating people. He devises evil and continually sows discord. What does that mean? It means to do things that produces division, not unity produces strife and not peace. You want to be worthless, do that. 
Solomon then says in verse 15 that this man will reap what he sows. Just a brief word on that principle in Scripture. We live in a world where people like to talk a lot about karma, you know? People like to talk a lot about like what goes around comes around. But it's kind of cool as a as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and as a person who reads Scripture, you can say, yeah, I, I agree with you. I just I wouldn't call it karma. I would just say we reap what we sow. The Scripture is clear about that. What does verse 15 say about this wicked, worthless person? It says, calamity will come upon him suddenly, and in a moment he will be broken beyond healing. Think of Asaph in Psalm 73. He's grumbling. Why do the wicked prosper, God? But then he is shown the end of the wicked and how it will come swiftly in a moment. The wicked will be no more and they will face judgment. And it changes everything for him. This is what Solomon is describing here. Looking at these verses, I was talking to Michelle last night. I was like, you know, it'd be, it'd be fun to watch Netflix with Solomon. Because he'd be pointing out worthless people all over the place in a lot of the shows that we watch, would he not? You know, those characters in every show that just go around sowing discord, they're always plotting, they're always manipulating, they're always stirring up drama, they're always pitting people against each other. You know, I know some of y'all watch Gossip Girl, so I mean, you understand what I'm saying. Solomon would look at that and he would say, worthless. But look, like all jokes aside, we do this as fallen people. We manipulate others. We plot evil. We seek to destroy other people. We pit people against each other. We manipulate other people for our own gain or worse, for our own enjoyment. Solomon's clear that God hates that. Section 4. In verses 16 to 19, we are told seven things that the Lord hates. Seven things that are an abomination to him. So Solomon says very clearly, here's some stuff God hates. Okay, that's like an eyebrow razor. Like, okay, like that's straightforward language. We should listen. Like God, the creator of the universe, the holy and righteous king of kings, hates some stuff, and Solomon's going to tell us. It's simple and it's sobering. He begins that the Lord hates haughty eyes. Haughtiness is a, a synonym for being proud, right? being puffed up, conceited. You're proud of yourself, you think well of yourself, and you look down on other people. This is contrary to what God tells us in his word we are to do. We are to walk humbly before our God, Micah 6. We are told in Proverbs, and this is cited by James and Peter in the New Testament, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Rather than having haughty eyes that look down on others, we are called to love others and seek to build them up. Next, Solomon tells us that God hates a lying tongue. God is truth and God is light. God is pure and upright and never sins. He always speaks the truth, and so he hates lies. Consider these words from the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 9, verses 2 and following. You don't need to turn there. You can just listen. 
God is speaking through the prophet about his people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves in committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them, for what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Those are serious words about what the Lord thinks of lying and deceitfulness with our tongues. The next thing we're told back in Proverbs 6 that the Lord hates are hands that shed innocent blood. We're told in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20 and verse 13, you shall not murder. God says to Noah in Genesis 9, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Next we're told by Solomon that God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. We just thought about this a minute ago with the wicked man who devises evil and sows division. We are told next by Solomon that God hates feet that make haste to run to evil. Rather than running to good and fleeing from evil, it's the opposite. There is an eagerness to participate in wicked things with people like this, and God hates that. It is very much a Romans 132 reality where people not only do evil, they celebrate those who do evil. Next, Solomon tells us that God hates a false witness who breathes out lies. If you survey scripture and see what the Lord has to say about false witness, false testimony, lying about somebody else to try to put them in harm's way, to try to bring punishment upon them, to slander them, God has serious things to say about it. Exodus 20 and verse 16, again, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Deuteronomy 19, 16 and following, the Lord says this, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So in other words, were you to falsely accuse another person of murder, in the eyes of God, that is just as serious of an offense as if you had actually committed murder. God hates false witness and those who breathe out lies. Lastly, God hates one who sows discord among brothers. 
It is God's desire that there be love, unity, and peace amongst his people. Jesus tells his disciples in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. God desires that there be no division in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. And as for how to treat divisive people, Paul writes this in Titus 3, 10 and 11. As, a, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. Friends, these things, these words of Solomon and these verses are instructive for us. What is it that God hates, according to Solomon in Proverbs 6? He hates pride and haughtiness. He hates lying and false witness. He hates a quickness to devise and do evil. And he hates the sowing of discord and division among his people. So it's instructive for us in that if we are making lists of things that God hates, these should certainly make the cut. Section 5. In verses 20 to 35, we are warned against sexual sin. In verses 20 to 35, we are warned against sexual sin. Now, just a note, in the sermon on Proverbs 5, we dealt a lot with sexual sin and issues related to our sexuality, and we will again next week in Proverbs 7. So I plan to briefly survey these verses for us to get the sense of them, and then we will move to conclude. Solomon, remember, is communicating to a proverbial son, so he is talking to his proverbial male child about a female adulteress, but we understand that these verses apply both directions to men and women. So in verses 20 to 22, we are told about the goodness of keeping commandments, about not even forsaking the teaching of our father and mother. Again, this is Solomon talking to the congregation of Israel. This is language just like you read in Deuteronomy, that we are to be teaching our children the word, the truth of the Lord. And so in the parents' teaching, we would understand that God's truth is represented. We read in verses 23 and 24 that the commandments not only will be with us and watch over us generally, as he says in verse 22, but they will protect us in particular against sexual sin. Solomon says the exact same thing in Proverbs 2. In verses 25 and 26, he essentially says, look, do not be allured into adultery. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it. It's too costly. I mean, he says it in a kind of punchy way. He says, look, the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. But if you go and do this, it will cost you everything. It will ruin your life. We often are not mindful of the cost of sin on the front end. When we experience temptation, when we feel the cravings and the desires of our flesh, a lot of times all we can see is what it would be like to gratify that, and we're not mindful of what comes immediately after. Solomon says it's not worth it. Verses 27 to 29, he says, not only don't be allured into adultery, it's not worth it, but don't flirt with it either. Do you think that you can carry fire around and not get burned? No. The answer is rhetorically no. Do you think that you can walk across hot coals and not be scorched? No. You will get burned, is what Solomon says, and others will too. I said this in the Proverbs 5 sermon, and I will keep saying it. 
for our good, for our protection. There is not a human being, save Jesus, who being put in the right set of circumstances would not fall sexually. There's not a human being, save Christ, who put in the right set of circumstances would not fall sexually. We need to own that reality lest we fall. This is why, as Solomon writes here, wisdom when it comes to not falling in this way is to not go there at all as much as that is possible. If you go near it, it won't go well. Verses 30 and 31, Solomon makes it clear that if you are found out, it won't be good. But verses 32 to 35, even if you aren't found out, you still destroy yourself. Nobody comes out of this unscathed. No matter what you might think or try to convince yourself of. When you sin in this way, there will be wounds. There will be dishonor. You will have hurt other people who may want to hurt you back. There will be pain. And this is because we reap what we sow. So conclusion, briefly. Maybe you've been sitting here and you've been listening, you've been looking at the text and listening to me speak, and you're thinking, man, like Solomon is writing about me. It's like he wrote this to me. These things that he's telling us are, are good, I, need, I needed to hear that. Things that he's telling us are bad, I need to hear that. But it's hard because I know I'm failing. The writer to the Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Solomon is exposing my sin. It's like he's cut me open and he's laid my heart bare. We know that we have not done righteousness. We know that we have failed to keep God's commands and live according to what he says is good. Well, thank God that Hebrews 4.14 comes right after Hebrews 4.13. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. What is that? Our confession of him as Messiah, Christ, Savior, Lord. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thank God. So if you're sitting here and thinking Solomon is writing about me and I am wrecked and I am undone, sinner, consider Christ. Draw near to the throne of God in Him. There you will find mercy and there you will find grace to help you in time of need. Maybe you've been sitting here thinking that I know God is right. I know that what Solomon says is right. God's law is good. I want to do what he says. I don't want to do what he says is bad. I just cannot seem to pull it off. What do you have for me? I would encourage you, brother or sister, take heart. 
there was another who felt that exact same way, and his name was Paul. He writes of himself, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, that is in my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What's his answer? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look to Christ as you are confronted with the reality that Paul was confronted with, that I delight in God's law in my heart. I want to obey it, but I can't seem to pull it off. Look to Christ and believe upon Him. Know that by faith in Him, you are ransomed, cleansed, forgiven, and righteous. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking, but brother, I want to grow in holiness. I want to grow in godliness. I want to grow in wisdom as I'm listening to the words of Solomon from Proverbs 6. That's the right response. But brother, help me. How can I know that that will happen? In short, if it depended upon you, it wouldn't. But because it doesn't, it will. Listen to these words from God's holy word. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Will bring it to completion is more than just simply saying he will finally save you. He will do everything that he has promised to do. And part of what he has promised to do is to work in us by his spirit to conform us to the image of his son. He will do it. In the meantime, we're safe. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Put it on your refrigerator, Hebrews 10, 14. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's certain, sister, it's certain, brother, that you will be sanctified, that you will grow in godliness and holiness and wisdom. How does it happen? It happens as we are simply obedient to implement and partake of just the ordinary things that God encourages us to do in his word. You being here this morning is a massive piece of that. You continuing to show up here on Sunday to sit under the word and come to the table and sing and pray together for you to continue to experience and prioritize the fellowship of the saints in your life is a big piece of it. Our discipleship and our sanctification and all of those things start here. This corporate reality drives the private. As I said before, if, if it depended on us, it wouldn't be a hopeful endeavor. If we could blow it, we would. But praise God, it does not decisively depend on us. We read words like this from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it. And so we pray to Him. Corporately, we pray to Him regularly that He would keep His promises to do for us what He has said that He will do. So let's go to Him now. Let's pray. And let's ask Him to continue to do this sanctifying, preserving work in us. Our Father, we come to You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the things that You teach us quite clearly in Your Word that are good for us. We thank You for the things that You warn us strongly against. We acknowledge that in our flesh, we desire to do things that are wrong, and we don't desire to do things that are good. We also thank you and acknowledge that because of your spirit in us, we want to follow you. We want to obey. We want to do good and flee from evil. And so we pray for grace. We pray that you would help us to pursue the things that you say are good and to flee from the things that you say are evil. It is that simple and it is impossible for us to do in our own strength. So we pray for you to work in us and through us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you're faithful to do this. We pray that you would use what we've done already in this service to this end. We pray that you would use what we are about to do as we come to partake of the Lord's table to continue your work in our lives. We pray for you to do it for Jesus' sake, and we pray for it in his name. Amen.